Hello, everyone, and welcome to The J-Spot. My name is Jacqueline Clarizio. I'm a physician assistant from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm so, so lucky to have Dr. John DeLay here, who is not only a mentor to me, but also was my former boss. So hi, Dr. John DeLay. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Excited to do this podcast with you. <laughs> yeah. Dr. John Lee has been in practice for 12 years, practicing both cosmetic and reconstructive plastic surgery. Um, on today's podcast, we're going to talk about baby ear molding, which I think is a topic that not many people know about. And Dr. John Lee has been doing this procedure for about eight or nine years, right? Yep, exactly. So let's just get started and talk a little bit about like what got you into doing this procedure. Why did you start doing this? Yeah, so I... Um... You know, I, I trained at the University of Pennsylvania, which you know, uh, for plastic surgery tr residency training. And for our pediatric and newborn experience, we uh, rotated at the Children's Hospital Philadelphia CHOP. Um, and so we saw all these crazy deformities there that, you know, when you're there, you realize, you know, the kind of most extreme stuff, the rarest stuff all goes to CHOP. So when you see things, you think they're the most rare things. And so we would see ear deformities and a few of my, you know, attendings that trained me, um, they, they did ear molding, um, but I didn't think too much of it. And I didn't think, um, you know, I'd ever really encounter it and I, I never really did it. Um, but then nine years ago when my first daughter was born, um, she had kind of a big kink in the top of her ear and it was really, it was a pretty noticeable defect, but, um, you know, she was born, you know, premature and we didn't think too much of it in the beginning. And then I told my wife, I said, well, you know, let's find somebody in Connecticut, which is where we live. I said, let's find somebody that does ear molding and uh, let's get it fixed. It's non-surgical. It's easy. But there was like not a single person in Connecticut doing it uh, at that time. And, you know, we called both children's hospitals. And so I actually brought her down to Philadelphia and uh, had it done there at CHOP and it came out great. So that got me kind of thinking about it and I got all the equipment and started doing it. That's so cool. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between like a malformation and an actual ear deformity? Yeah. So, um, I would say the, definitely the more common thing is, is deformities. Uh, deformity is essentially when all parts of the ear are there, um, the skin, the cartilage, everything, but it's just deformed. It's not like the correct shape. It's not what, you know, people would think of as the shape of an ear. A malformation is is more severe, um, and it's where you know parts of the ear are missing, uh, where uh, it can be microtia, which is you know uh, the ear is smaller but is missing parts, or it can be anosia, which is um, where essentially the the whole external ear is not even there. So those those are you know malformations are are much more severe. You can have other aspects of, you know, a different syndrome. Um, and those things need to be treated, you know, in a multidisciplinary area, um, at a, like a children's hospital somewhere. So for children with ear deformities, is there any effect on hearing? Uh, no, there's usually not with, with malformations where you're missing whole parts of the ear, the, the external ear plus the inner ear, um, can be abnormal, but with deformities, they usually don't have any, uh, you know, impact on their, their hearing. Yeah. So that's a good question. So of all these ear deformities, are there any that you most commonly see? And can you talk about a few of the ear deformities that you're seeing and you're performing these ear moldings on? 
Yeah, I would say, um, you know, by far the most common is probably prominent ears. Um, and, uh, you know, people call them by all sorts of names. Some people just say it's, you know, large ears, uh, prominent ears. Uh, you know, unfortunately, people say Dumbo ears and bat ears and things like that, which is kind of just, you know, derived, you know, not so nice ways to. <laughs> yeah, which it's really not 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 what, what we say nowadays, but prominent ears. Um, and it's usually either um, this fold here on the ear is is not present. So what happens is that the whole thing just kind of comes out like that. And that's what makes it stick away from the scalp more. So um, prominent ears, probably one of the most common. Uh, there's all kinds of helical rim deformities. This is kind of the helix, which is kind of the outer rim of the ear. So if that's pointed or if it's folded in, it's a helical rim deformity. Uh, lidding is one of the most common where the top of the ear just kind of folds down. Um, so I would say those are definitely the most common. And um, uh, in ear molding, is this something that's like a newer procedure or is it something that's been around a while? It's just less people are doing it. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely picking up in, in popularity and more providers are doing it, uh, in America. It, it started in Asia, um, a few decades ago and they just, they essentially, you know, found out that the cartilage in newborns is soft and it's soft because of, um, the maternal estrogen that's in the babies. And for the first few weeks, you have this window where the baby still has estrogen in them from being in the mother. And so it keeps the cartilage soft. So if you can mold it while the cartilage is soft and then get it into that new shape that you want it, uh, and then the estrogen levels drop and then the cartilage starts to harden and then it'll essentially stay in that hard shape. So that's the whole idea behind it. So you're talking a lot about a time frame where there's still where they still have that estrogen. What is that time frame that ear molding is effective? Yeah. Um, we like starting within the first month. Um, we usually don't start in the first week. Um, there was two big studies, one out of Canada and one out of Texas that, first of all, they showed that ear deformities are a whole lot more common than people think. It's probably one in four, one in five babies have some sort of ear deformity. Um, some of them are so mild, you'd never even look at them twice or think about it. Um, and then some are much more severe where if they didn't get ear molding, you know, they would definitely want to have some sort of corrective surgery in the future. Um, but that study, it was interesting They they, they followed the babies and they wanted to see how many of them, how many of the deformities corrected on their own. Um, you know, the old adage, which pediatricians or, you know, grandparents would always say is, oh, they'll grow into it. Yeah. And, um, and they found that about a third of the time they do correct on their own, but it's only in the first, you know, week or 10 days, whatever the deformity is by about a week afterwards, um, it's probably going to stay. So we usually don't mold in the first week. There's so much going on for new parents. So we usually wait for them to be at least a week old and, uh, we ideally like to do it within a month, but, I mean, I've definitely had success doing it up to even, you know, two and a half or three months. Um, but mm -hmm. sometimes we kind of can't, you know, guarantee that you're, you're going to have, you know, a perfect result. Maybe we can just get an improvement in shape. If it's an older child and you're starting at a later age, do you have to mold for a longer period of time or? Yeah, a, a lot of people, um, you know, don't do it for, for that reason, because you do have to do it, um, for longer and older babies that are in that three month phase, they just, they tend to move around so much more. They're not just sleeping all day like newborns. 
Um, and you have to mold for longer because the cartilage starts harder. And so it just takes longer to get it into that new shape and keep it in that new shape. Yeah, that all makes sense. Can you talk a little bit about how the molding works and how you apply it and what the process actually looks like? Yeah. So, um, you know, we tell all parents ahead of time that we, we do need to, you know, trim a little bit of hair around the ear, just uh, essentially so that you only got to hold the mold on a newborn that's turning their head side and side to side all the time, um, is, you know, with some sort of adhesive, um, and, uh, there's lots of different types of ear mold. There's some that are, um, you know, kind of pre-made, but we still customize them. Something called ear well is one of the most common ones. Um, I, uh, usually make my own out of, uh, silicone and, uh, there's just kind of parts that you, you put in there that it's totally non-surgical. So it's not surgery. And, uh, you just kind of reshape the ear with these little pieces. You stick it back to the scalp and then, uh, you, um, you use the silicone to essentially maintain the shape and hold everything in place. And then some sort of adhesive to hold it in place. Um, so that's, uh, there, there's, there's different ways to do it and everyone probably does it a little differently. I found, uh, kind of the most freedom to be able to treat lots of different types of deformities, but also different severities and older babies with, uh, with making my own custom one. And that's completely non-toxic, right? Yeah. It's, it's like medical grade silicone and it's actually, um, used, uh, in the mouth to make dental impressions and things like that. So it's, you know, it's safe on the skin cause you know, it's safe in the mouth. How many parents cry when you're shaving the baby's hair? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would say the, the mothers are definitely more emotional. The fathers are like, whatever, I could just get it done. <laughs> Um, I feel like I'd be crying. Yeah, I literally had a mother like holding my hand back the other day. I was like, just a few more millimeters. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny. Yeah. Um, and when these babies, like, do you have any advice to parents that are getting this done? How to keep the babies calm during it, and how to keep them staying still during the procedure? Yeah. Um, you know, the good thing about doing it in really young babies is they, they tend not to move around much, you know, as they get up to that, like two and a half, three month old age, they, they do tend to move more. But, you know, we tell parents to, uh, bring a, a pacifier, uh, bring a swaddle, uh, change their diaper before they come, um, you know, feed them before they come. But even sometimes if they just have an extra bottle, it's always good because, Sometimes it's just tough with appointment times or traveling to the office. They can't feed them. And then if we have a bottle, sometimes we just feed them while, while we're doing it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not painful at all. So they, uh, you know, it's as long as they're distracted. Stranger they, with you, stranger yeah, danger. they do really yeah. well. Um, I, I remember this when we were practicing together that if the baby is severely crying or hysterical, it makes it a lot harder, right? Because the adhesive has a harder time adhering to the skin. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, not only are they moving and you're, and you're trying to do something that's very fine, you, you really want to form, you know, the shape of the ear perfectly. Um, and if you have too much pressure on one area, it can cause like a little sore or something like that. So it's, it's really good if they're either sleeping or uh, just, you know, happy with a pacifier. Uh, but also if they're crying a lot, um, then they start sweating. Um, and that, you know, the adhesive just doesn't stick as well when they're sweating. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So you talked about getting a little, you know, ulceration or sore on the ear from the molding. 
Is that the ma the most common risk from this procedure? Are there other risks that you talk about? Yeah. I, you know, when I talk to parents, I essentially review two risks with them. I say, there's always the risk that you can put a little too much pressure on one area and you can get a little scab or a little sore. If we see that, it's why we don't try to, you know, super glue it in place for, you know, four to six weeks for the whole treatment. You know, every week or two, we, we see them, we make adjustments, we take it off, we clean the ear. Um, just to look for any of those things. Uh, you know, we give everyone instructions on what to look out for. Uh, if they see anything, they can always send photos in or always call. Um, and then the second main risk is uh, you parents just have to be careful about the baby spitting up. So we tell them to uh, burp them really well. Whenever, uh, you know, if they're going to have spit up, you want it to kind of go forward instead of just kind of flooding both ears or one ear. And when they're feeding the baby, whatever ear is kind of facing on the downside, you know, they always have little drips and dribble that come out of their mouth. So uh, you don't want those going underneath the, the mold because it just tends to, you know, fester. Um, it's not really a risk of infection. Uh, I compare it to a diaper rash. You know, when a baby gets a bad diaper rash, you know, their butt looks so, you know, just irritated and red, but it's more of a contact dermatitis. Um, and it just needs to be, you know, cleaned and dry. So sometimes we do have to take it off and, you know, let it air dry for a few days. Uh, and then, and then the redness or, you know, that contact dermatitis goes away and then we can put it back on. That makes sense. So yeah. going back to the, like the pressure sore, how do you treat that if that were to happen? Yeah, usually it's, it's very superficial. Uh, sometimes we'll just have them, we'll keep the mold off or sometimes we can still put a mold on, but maybe we just don't cover that area. So it, it can, it can essentially just heal and air dry and it just forms a teeny little scab. It doesn't leave any scar or anything like that. Sometimes we'll have them put a little bit of bacitracin on it just to, um, you know, help it, you know, stay moist and heal quicker. Cool. So when we're talking about the timeline of ear molding, can you tell like listeners a little bit about start to finish when patients are coming in for visits, how long the mold is going to be on and when it is taken off. Yeah. So, uh, ideally we like them to come in before they're a month old. You do have a little bit more time if they're premature. Uh, so if they're a month premature, you know, their cartilage is just going to be softer for longer. So babies that are in the NICU, you know, for three, four weeks, you know, it doesn't mean you're out of that timeline already. So, that's one thing that I think is important to know, but uh, we have them come in and then we we put it on usually at the first visit. We get insurance approval and everything ahead of time. And uh, when they come in, we, we put it on and then usually the first follow-up is one to two weeks afterwards. And I'd say very mild deformities that we start early, we usually do it for four weeks. Uh, the average, probably six weeks. So there are a few trips into the office, but um, you know, well worth it, you know, in, in the, uh, in the big picture and really severe deformities, really tight ears, really constricted, tough cartilage, um, older babies, sometimes eight weeks total. I really are have you, never done it for longer than eight weeks. Are you applying a new mold every time? Yeah. So as you, um, you know, as you reshape the ear, you know, the shape, the size changes essentially. So, um, you do have to, you can only put so much pull and tension on it to reshape it, um, you know, initially. So as you kind of, as the ear changes and as you need to make adjustments, you essentially need to put a new mold on. And once you remove it, you really can't put it back.
but also it tends to be dirty. They have a little bit of spit up in it. So if you put it back, it's probably just going to get, you know, irritated. Yeah. Yeah. And we already spoke about this, but this is not painful to the baby in any way. They can sleep normally at home. They can do all normal activities except for getting it wet, right? Yep, exactly. So we we tell uh, parents they can still, you know, give the baby a bath, but they just have to be careful with splashing and stuff like that. They can only give a bath from, you know, the neck down. Um, we tell them not to, you know, if they have a little bit of cradle cap, you know, you want to like, you know, normally pediatricians and parents want, you want to get rid of the cradle cap. So you don't want to put oils on their head and stuff like that. Cause those oils will seep right down, you know, into the adhesive, you know, holding this thing in place and it'll just, it'll just get loose and come off. Um, they can wear hats. They can, you know, if they start kind of swatting at it or, uh, grabbing it, they can, we tell parents to put mittens on so they can't really grab into it, grab onto it. But that's usually older babies, not usually in the first month. And, um, it doesn't affect how they sleep. It doesn't affect how they hear. It doesn't cover the ear canal. So, you know, sound waves can still go in. No problem. Uh, mothers can still breastfeed. They can still nurse. No problem. Yeah. So speech development is fine and everything. Yeah, exactly. As, as long as they can still hear, which is, you know, essentially, you know, the inner ear and the, the external auditory canal is we don't ever cover that up. So, you know, sound waves can still get in and they can hear. That's great. Yeah. So Dr. John Lee is when you talk about this procedure, it's completely cosmetic, right? There, is there any like benefit to doing ear molding aside from appearance, which is a huge benefit, especially for kids with like bullying, et cetera. Um, but is there any necessity in this procedure or is it more cosmetic to get rid of deformities that usually people have to live with? Yeah. I, I, I like to try to avoid calling it cosmetic just because, um, it, it is usually covered by insurance, um, which, you know, they wouldn't cover something that is totally cosmetic. It's really to, you know, restore the normal shape to the ear. Um, and, uh, you know, I compare it to insurance approval for, um, breast reconstruction, which as you know, I do a lot of, yeah. and, you know, having, you know, breast reconstruction is not functional in any way, you know, to women, but it helps restore, you know, a woman's self-image and how she looks at herself and her confidence and, you know, tons of, you know, impact on mental health and everything. Um, so, you know, some people could say that that's cosmetic because it, it, it has no function. Um, same sort of thing with this. I, th I think it's very similar, um, you know, appearance and symmetry uh, is, is so important and, and especially in, you know, kids. Uh, kids are kids can be really brutal, and they they tend to tease each other. And it, we, we know that from you know when we do ear surgery. So if somebody doesn't get ear molding, uh, really the only option, unfortunately, is surgery. And we usually do that around the age of five or six years old because it's at that age that the cartilage you know is obviously fully hardened. The ears are almost fully you know adult adult size. But also that's when kids start teasing each other, you know, mm -hmm. when they get into elementary school and, and that can, you know, can have mental health implications and everything. And, you know, some of these are pretty severe and, and they're pretty noticeable. That's pretty incredible too, to know that this is something that does go through insurance. You, it's not like something you'd have to pay out of pocket for. So I think if people, more people knew it was an option, I feel like more people would be doing it. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, definitely try to get the word out there. You know, when you were uh, in our office, you know, you saw how we went around and talked to pediatricians uh, in Connecticut. Uh, pediatricians never brought it up because they didn't know about it. Um, you know, if, if you don't know that there's a non-surgical option, you're not going to bring up, you know, an ear deformity with a parent and just say, hey, just to let you know, your baby has an ear deformity. There's nothing you can do about it, but I just thought I'd let you know. Yeah. So, you know, we went around and, and talked to a lot of pediatricians and we would go to their offices and give presentations and let them know about this as, you know, a non-surgical option that's covered by insurance. Yeah. And is there any contraindications to this procedure? Are there any, you know, newborns that you would not do baby ear molding on? Um, not really contraindications. Obviously, malformations where they're missing parts of the ear, you really can't do it. Um, those have to go to a children's hospital and they're, you know, they have, they have an entire workup to see if they have any syndromes or anything. Um, the only relative contraindications would be babies that have really, you know, sometimes we try it, but it's difficult, really oily skin, baby acne, really bad cradle cap, just, just skin that's really irritated already to begin with, even before you start doing ear molding. And it's just because it's such sebaceous skin that uh, covering it up makes it worse, and it um, and it doesn't the, no adhesive really sticks to it. So it's it's very difficult to keep it in place, you know. And we know that after you know sometimes we try, but babies go home, and then you know two days later it just it falls off. Yeah. And is it a hundred percent guaranteed that the deformity will be fixed with the ear molding? And then this kind of leads me to my next question. Is there any differences between ethnicities of the efficacy of ear molding? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll tackle the, the second question first. Not that I know of. I don't think there's any differences in ethnicities, and I don't know any variations in incidents across ethnicities um, or differences in outcome with molding. Uh, every baby has some estrogen in them, which keeps the cartilage soft. So uh, that drops off at some point and the cartilage hardens. Um, in terms of, uh, what was your first question? <laughs> My first question is, is it a hundred percent guaranteed that you're going to get the result? Yeah. There's a lot of good studies that show that if you start early enough, the correction is not a hundred percent, but in the nineties, uh, you can easily get above 90% correction. And what I tell parents is even if we can't fully corrected. If it's really tough deformity, if we start a little bit late, uh, usually you can still get an improvement. And the goal is to obviously make the ear symmetric, whether you're, you're doing one ear or both ears, but also to give a nice shape. And it's, it's the things that are kind of visible across a room. Little deformities, mild deformities, they don't catch people's attention. Nobody's face is exactly symmetric. Nobody's ears are exactly even. And, um, it's, we, we just really want to correct those things that, that really stand out that, um, you know, that would be an issue later in life. And Dr. John Lee, have you ever seen cases where it was corrected and it reverted back to the original deformity? Yeah, I, I have, um, kind of early in ear molding you, when the cartilage is soft, you, you, you mold early and you get a great result and they come in at two weeks and it's like a perfect shape. And you're like, Oh, well, I got it there. It's, it's, it's done. Perfect. 
but you kind of learn early on that you do need to do. That's why some people try doing it only for a week or two. Um, I've really found the most success in doing it for at least four weeks, no matter what age, uh, no matter kind of how mild the deformity. And I think that gives kind of the longer lasting result. Um, there are there are some cases where we start late and the cartilage just has so much memory in it, into it where it does start folding or, you know, going back to that original shape. Does it ever get there? I don't think so. Um, but that that's, that's the conversation that we have when we're starting later in life, that there's a chance that it can revert back a little bit, but usually we can still maintain some, some, uh, improvement. Yeah, that's incredible. Seriously. Um, for parents trying to find providers that do ear molding, what's your best suggestion for them to find someone who does this procedure? Yeah. I mean, they can always ask their pediatrician, um, if they're, if, uh, if, if they're in an area where there's somebody doing ear molding, the pediatrician likely knows about it. Um, you know, I treat people in Connecticut, but I also treat people in, in New York City. Um, the reason I started treating people in, in New York City was when I was in Connecticut doing it, I, I started noticing New Yorkers coming across the border and coming up to Connecticut to, to get ear molding. And you, you remember that from, you know, being yeah. in the office. And, uh, and so you know, I said to myself, don't tell me, you know, nobody's really doing this in New York. And there definitely are people that do it in New York, but, you know, some people have an age cutoff. Um, some people only use ear well. So they're, I think they're a little bit more limited in the types of deformities, the severity of the deformities, but also the age that they start at. Um, so that's why I started going to New York City to do it. Um, so I would say, you know, first talk to your pediatrician. Second would probably be to Google it and see, you know, who's in your area, because if they do it, it's likely on their website and it's either going to be a plastic surgeon, maybe an ENT, ear, nose, throat surgeon. Um, So I think those are probably the best options. That's great. Well, this is one of my favorite things that I learned when working with you. I mean, I went to school where we learned about primary care and surgery, but they didn't teach us baby ear molding. So when I first started seeing you do this, I was just like amazed that this is even an option. I mean, there's so many kids that have to grow up with ear deformities. So I really just think it's like an amazing procedure that we need more uh, publicity about because like not many people know about it. Yeah. We, um, you know, I was the same way. Like I said, I, I, I didn't realize how common it was until my own daughter was born with it. And then I just kind of started looking into it more and refined some techniques. And, uh, it's, it's, it's really neat. It's, it's fun doing it on babies. And, you know, we get all these thank you letters and reviews and things like that. Cause you really make a lasting difference in, in these babies lives. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything else that you want to add about baby ear molding? that we didn't touch on today? No, I mean, this, this was great. I think you, I think you covered everything. Everything. Yeah. Did my job. This is, this is a crash course in baby ear molding. (laughs) Spark notes. If people still know what that is, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. John Lee. Dr. John Lee is located in Trumbull, Connecticut. He's the best guy out there for this procedure. So if you you have any family members or anyone you know who needs baby ear molding, go see him. John Dilly Plastic Surgery. And we'll see you next week on the J-Spot. Bye.